0: Will the Lord be with you? Thank you. Thank you. you. Michael wanted me to, our six-year-old wanted me to have this with me today, so I do. (laughs) I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm not going to argue. So next week, next week you get to find out where that phrase, the Lord be with you, comes from, um, if you don't know already. So we're jumping into the book of Ruth, and I realized I may have have over-promised something given on my under-delivery in the first service on this promise. And that is that I told you, like, this is going to be so much more refreshing than the book of Judges, that the book of Judges is mostly dark and kind of dreary and depressing, and, and it ends badly. It is a true... I mean, if if you're a literature person, the book of Ruth is a true literary tragedy. It is, it ends with broken relationships. It ends with, with all types of, of, of of stuff just shattered, the community destroyed. And that's how you know you're reading a, um, a literary tragedy is when the, the community is broken at the end. Um, And so, and what I mean is that, is that the book of Ruth is going to be a, a breath of fresh air after studying judges. It's going to be Um, A powerful, encouraging, um, uh, uplifting thing for us to study after chapter 1. And so I realized I get through with chapter 1 this morning and like, yeah, everyone came going, this is going to be so much better. No, not through chapter 1. In fact, chapter 1 is is really a continuation. And chapter 1, if you've read the book of Ruth before, you're going to understand the condition of Ruth and Naomi at the end of chapter 1 like never before after going through a series on Judges. You're going to see just how bad things are for them. Um, So we will we will jump straight in. I would actually one other little tiny comment. Um, So when uh, when the band under John's leadership and this team when they go into a couple of um, uh, um, stanzas, whatever the right terminology is here, there are a couple of stanzas of of just music. um, That's not accidental. That's not just showing off someone's skills or anything like that. That is if, if you will, if you will ride along with the leadership that you've been led in, you will find that those are going to hit very much so probably at the moment when you need to kind of be still for a moment. Um, that's very intentional the way John and his team do that. And so I've said for years, like this is, um, one of the, one of the reasons I, I love working with John <clears throat> is I think he gets this in so many ways that so few of us do. I, and I don't mean me. I don't, I don't get it. Like, I don't, I don't know how he works that. And so it's, it's amazing to me that he does. But um uh you know it's it's a natural thing for us to in our country we want things our way that's our culture that's what we we get things we get them our way and it's a beautiful thing to come on a Sunday morning and for for just a few hours to not really get your way is actually hopefully comforting for you in some ways that you can turn on your Spotify for the other 260 something hours a week and listen to whatever you want to listen to and then to come here for a few minutes and to be led um is to me is just a beautiful thing um yes of course The pride in all of us kicks against that until God grows us up. But I hope you got to experience that today um, and you will through this, especially through this season in some cool ways. So as we look at this book, the book of Ruth, you've got your Bible, turn over in Ruth to chapter one. Um, So this is a, even though it's such a dark and dreary book at the beginning, so much tragedy is in this book, salvation, redemption, reconciliation, and great joy is woven into the story. And partially because of how dark it is at chapter one. Um, you know, most good literary um, writers will wait until about two thirds of the way through the book to bring you to the place of just kind of utter despair. Um, if you've got any like Tolkien fans in the room, geniuses like him would lead you to a point, there's always a point in the book when everything is going wrong at the exact same moment for every different storyline. Um, all the superhero movies that you see and that kind of stuff. There will be a moment when everything is going bad for everyone. Suddenly everyone is losing at the same time. The writer of the book of Ruth is not going to set us up that way. They're, they're going to start with it being bad. You'll get, we'll, at the end of chapter 1, we are at a point of just despair. And to the degree you understand it, you'll engage with that. Here's where it begins. Right off the bat. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons, um, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, Oh, wait, so these, took, these took Moabite wives the names of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth they lived there about 10 years both Malon and Kilion died so the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband now notice this is in the days when judges ruled this should give us a lot of insight it would be helpful if we understood something about what, it, what the time was like when the judges ruled but no one studies judges right I mean come on who does that except we have and so we have a very intense hopefully a very intense feeling of what that is like I hope that at the intellectual level and the emotional level you are engaging with oh no this is during the judges I mean this is this is not going to be a happy story this is during the time of the judges we don't have happy stories in the time of the judges and so this is going to be a dark story hopefully you have that I pray that over the last few months of us studying judges your heart was prepared to be discouraged instantaneously, you hear, this was in the time of the judges. They were contemporaries of people like Barak or Samson, or we really don't know for sure. There's different opinions on where these people, where this story would fit in the account of the judges. It doesn't, it might offer us insight if we knew for sure, but if it was important, we probably would know for sure. What we know is it was during the time of the judges, and that's plenty. <clears throat> and we know that this is Bethlehem. So we start our story in Bethlehem. We're not going to stay there long, and then we will turn to it. But we start our story in the the location of Bethlehem of Judah. This is the Bethlehem that's just down the road from Jerusalem. So at the time of of Jesus Christ, so what's going to happen between this this story? So at this story, at the time of this story, this is during the time of the judges, which means the, the house of God was not a temple in Jerusalem. There was no temple in Jerusalem. Um, What there was was a tabernacle, a big tent in Shiloh, a totally different location. And so there would be no need for Bethlehem to be a shepherding community. Once once Jerusalem becomes the capital and once there's a temple there, then you need a shepherding community. In fact, you need every community around Jerusalem to be a shepherding community because you've got a lot of animals to raise for sacrifice. Remember that in many of the cases, the sacrifice had to be a firstborn male lamb with no blemish. How many sheep do you have to raise to get enough firstborn male lambs with no blemish for the tens of thousands of people coming in Passover to sacrifice lambs like that? You've got to have sheep everywhere. And this would have been the case. And in the time of Jesus Christ, Bethlehem was a shepherding city because they needed all of the sheep they could get. In fact, by the time of Jesus, the shepherd community, the procurement of animals for sacrifice was run essentially by the mafia in that part of the world. And so that's why it was a con artistry job. It was run by criminals. Um, and in fact, so was most of the priesthood. And so that's, that's a dark, that's, that's got its own darkness there, which we'll come back to that. But at the time of where we are, there's no temple there yet. So there's no need for sheep. So what you have is an agrarian society. You have an agrarian culture here where you have, they're raising wheat and barley. And that, that is what you're dealing with in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was so good at raising wheat that its name was Bethlehem which means the house of bread. So here we have the house of bread is what we're dealing with in this. That's, that's our setting. So the time, the time of the judges. And this is, by the way, going to be a romantic, something of a romantic story between a man and a woman, the book of Ruth is. It's the, really the only true romance story we have in the Bible. Um, I know many people think Esther is. They're just wrong. Um, Esther is not very romantic when you study it at the biblical level. Um, it's actually not not too sweet at all so uh, not that aspect of it is a beautiful story but not for the romance yes you have song of solomon um it's not really a narrative though it doesn't really tell a story it kind of does if you if you dig into it hard enough it may tell a story but and so there's certainly romance involved there and, and people being in love with each other but this is this is going to be the story of two people falling in love and by the way they are clueless about that process almost the entire book just so you'll know Um, so that's what we're going to be talking about. But remember, this is a romance story set when, in the time of the judges, what do relationships between men and women generally look like during the book of judges? Is this a good thing? Oh my gosh, kidnapping, abuse, um, you, you name it. There's, there's everything that you can, disobedience, prostitution, betrayal, violence, demands, all these types of things are all over the place. There's nothing good. They are not set up. To have a positive experience in this time. But we're still with Elimelech. So Elimelech decides he's going to go to Moab. So we're going to change settings to Moab. Now, this is this is not a good strategy. And any because you're a good Jewish audience, you would immediately read into him saying, I'm going to go to Moab. Now, why do they go to Moab? Because there's a famine. They're out of food, they apparently, or think they're going to be out of food. Elimelech has land, but he can't, apparently he's not raising crops very well on his land. So he's going to go to Moab. Now you've heard of Moab because you just studied the book of Judges. Remember the big fat king who gets a sword driven all the way through him? Okay, He was the king of Moab. Moab was not a friend to Israel. This was an enemy of Israel. They enslaved the Jewish people. This was, this was not okay for Elimelech. So Elimelech is going to flee to a pagan land. Elimelech has a choice to make. Things are hard. Do I stay and become part of the solution? Do I stick it out and lead the people? Do I, have, do I model faith for my sons? Or do I, again, since you're a good, sophisticated Jewish audience, you immediately caught the irony of, do I leave the house of bread because I'm hungry. Is that what I'm going to do? Am I going to do this my way? Or am I going to do this God's way? The, the, the general teaching would be, and by the way, as that audience, you, you know if he chooses to go to Moab, you immediately, there's a groan that comes from the crowd. Oh, oh no. Things are not going to go well for him if he goes to Moab. Don't, don't do it, Elimelech, don't. Don't go to Moab, stay in Bethlehem, stay in God's promised land. This is his promised land to you. He will provide, he says, in his promised land. Don't don't leave. The question here is the one that we've been asking all through the book of Judges. Am I going to do this my way or am I going to do this God's way? Are we going to follow my agendas or are we going to follow God's agendas? Are we going to do this based on my wisdom or are we going to follow God's wisdom? Am I going to seek am I going to trust in my own understanding or am I going to refuse to lean on my own understanding and instead trust the Lord? That's the decision being made here. This is the, the one thing I left out of the sermon last week for lack of time as we wrapped up the book of Judges, and it fits well here as well. There is a famine. and Elimelech is a landowner. What am I going to do? So we have all these isms today, and the isms really are our way of trying to control the world around us, our way of trying to do it our way. So, so pick whichever isms you want, and there's, uh, there's uh, plenty of them uh, Capitalism or socialism or nationalism or pluralism or environmentalism or conservatism. And and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with some of these, that some of them have wisdom in them and some of them don't have much. But the, the truth of the matter is this is really when we depend on our own isms, we are setting ourselves up for certain failure. They may have a proper place within the context of a godly life, but as our thing, no. And so we end up with, the, with the, the, most, uh, the most kind of well-practiced, if not well-understood, and that's humanism. So the, you, most of you probably don't have a lot of understanding of what humanism is, which is totally fine. Some of you, last Sunday afternoon, um, heard a little mini-sermon on humanism um, uh, from our guest with, who was there with us, who, by the way, just so you'll know, those of you who are here, and we'll, we'll discuss it this Wednesday Um, But the atheist activist, uh, David Smalley, who was here last Sunday afternoon um, in the Q&A, just so you will know, let me just tell you something. Um, I took him out, he and his family out to eat afterwards. His wife and his mother were here. And in the conversation over dinner, first of all, just so you know, David and his wife and his mother raved about our church. They could, they, their, their experience was unlike anything they'd ever experienced in a church anywhere. The level of welcoming the sincere and authentic treatment of them as VIPs that, that clearly they come they came expecting to be treated as enemies and instead were treated as special guests and they experienced that to the degree that the activist atheist who was, I actually think he was part of why he was really off his game, if you were here he was, he was off his game, I'll just tell you on Sunday afternoon um, I think largely it was because he was having a hard time working up the anger that he feels at Christians in general that fuels what his experience has been because it was like, it was slippery in his hands. I, I mean, it was like given how he was being treated and his family was being treated, it was hard for him to continue to work up any anger and frustration at the church in general because of how they were being treated. He said, "I wish my, his mother is a Christian, I wish my mother lived here in Tyler so she could go to your church. That's a pretty cool thing to hear from an atheist activist, right? So, again, be encouraged. This stuff matters. When we welcome people in Jesus' name, it has an eternal impact. So, keep, we keep doing it every Sunday. If you're not a part of, of our welcoming team or some other role on Sunday morning, if you're a member, it's time. Um, we, need, we could use 50 more. So, that being said, humanism is... So, we have a definition of humanism from the American Humanist Association. Listen to this. This is a little scary to me. I'll be perfectly honest with you. This is something I would be scared to sign off on. Humanism is a progressive life stance that without supernaturalism, meaning no God or angels or external anything, right? Um, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of all humanity. Now, as Christians, of course, we believe that every human being has the moral um, ability and responsibility to lead meaningful ethical lives capable of adding, et cetera, et cetera, because we believe all of us are created in the image of God and someday face judgment with that God. my, My immediate question when I read this was responsible to who? I mean, this sounds like preparation for judgment. That's what scared me about this is I can can see at judgment God going, no, no, you knew this. See, here, I'll read it. You were responsible to this. How'd you do? Well, I did a lot of good things. Sure, granted. Enough? Flawlessly? Perfectly? Did you get it all together? Do you see that the, the, the problem isn't that people can do nice things at times? The problem is, there's, that's not sufficient. They also fail. Every single individual, every single one of us fails consistently, bordering on constantly. Even when we do do good things, it's tainted by our impure motives, right? Even when you do something that is that is altruistic, you hope somebody will call it altruistic, right? That's I did this awesome nice thing, and you hope someone will call it an awesome nice thing because at some level, I mean, how many times have you ever heard someone say you ought to do nice things? Why? Well, because it makes you feel good inside. So in other words, it's really just a selfish motive yet again. That's a, God hardwired us to feel good inside when we live according to the way he made us. That's, that was nice of him, but, but notice how we are truly infected. Here, and here's what's wild. So the, the, the shorthand of humanism is we are the source of and solution to all of our own problems. So we may have caused all this mess, but at least we can fix it. Is that what your life teaches you is a wise path? So if you've got someone in your office who is the source of all the problems, are they the person who you go? You know what? You know what makes sense? We need to put that person in charge of solving all these problems. Is that your experience? You got here. We're at Christmas time. You're about to hang out with your crazy family. Is there that one crazy family? If you don't have a crazy family member, by the way, that means it's you. Just as a <laughs> so if you and if you have one, there, there may could be more. Don't. I'm not discounting just because you do have one doesn't mean it isn't you. But there's so the the. That's, if the crazy family member who messes up every engagement, who messes up every, everything you get together ever with your family, this one family member messes it up, do you want to put them in charge of all the family gatherings? Does that make any sense? Here we have a whole set of girders. All of them individually fail on a consistent basis. But if we build a bridge out of all of them, surely that will work out well. I mean, is that not just nonsensical? In my mind, it is nonsensical. We need someone from outside of us to fix this problem. We don't seem capable of solving it on our own. Is is that what we've experienced or or have what we experienced? This, as the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one. Notice the emphasis. In case you didn't catch the all in the first line, Isaiah says, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, which is, that's part of the hope we'll get to at the end. Romans five twelve. therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, all of us. They're right. We bear the responsibility. And somehow we better find a solution to that. We're in a similar boat. We need a Savior. Experience tells us this. The Bible tells us this. It's pretty clear that we need help. Those are two sufficient witnesses. So think about it this way. With all the technology and medical wonders and that kind of stuff, very, very few of us go to sleep at night afraid for our lives. We're unlikely to be woken in the night by a saber-toothed tiger eating us. Just really rare for things like that to happen to us in America nowadays, right? Very rare, for us to, very rare for us to go to bed hungry. Our basic needs are met beyond sufficiency. That's why none of us have a hard time sleeping. That's why none of us have anxiety, right? That's why none of us have depression. Because all of our caveman fears have all been taken care of. We don't have these anymore. So that's why we don't have any of these issues, right? Surely, humans' efforts have solved this for us. Or, or not so much. The medical, by the way, the, the most important, potentially the most important technological breakthrough in all of human history is in the process of happening right now. Some of you saw it on my Facebook. There's a bunch of Hebrew scientists who claim that within five years they're going to print food on a 3D printer, and it's not going to have any calories. <laughs> but it's going to taste and feel exactly like the food. You, they're, they're, go, they're claiming that in five years they'll be able to print a cheeseburger that tastes like a cheeseburger, feels and smells like a cheeseburger, and has zero calories. This is the greatest medical, I mean, scientific breakthrough of all time. We could, within six years, be serving calorie-free donuts, and then I can eat them all. (laughs) I I can have, as John would say, all the donuts, right? How many of the donuts? All the donuts. Um, Will that solve it? At that point, that we won't be dealing with depression or fear or competition or anger or rage. Surely, surely with all of these advances, finally women are safe from the predation of self-absorbed and narcissistic men. I would hate to turn on the news this week and discover that that's not true. Wow. So we need to be entrenched and, and, and drenched with God's word with prayer, with following the leadership of his spirit. So that at least we as individuals have a shot because the Holy Spirit living out through us of being an example of something else. And when people say, that's amazing, these great things that you've done. I can't believe your church took on 230 Compassion Kids in just a few days. Yeah, let me just tell you, we're not that awesome. I mean, you you just come meet us. We will point you to someone other than us for this. So this is, this is a, it's a totally different mindset. And with, the problem is Elimelech hasn't studied the book of Judges sufficiently to know better. And that's what we run into with Elimelech. In Judges 21, 25, that famous verse that we commented on over and over again, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We aren't in the same boat. As Christians, we have a king. We have a king. And doing what is right in your own eyes is the absolute highest level of of foolishness when you have a king. That's the issue. So I pray that you have acknowledged this king. May God transform us with this new mind. 1 Timothy 6, 13. I'm going to read 13 through 16. It's a little bit long, but I want to work my way to it. I charge you therefore in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment Unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. The Apostle Paul is making it clear to his student Timothy this is what it's about. This is what what it comes down to. We have a king. And that's that's how we have to live our lives. Though we may exist right now in a democratic republic here in the United States, our citizenship as Christians is with a monarchy. That is where our true citizenship lies, our eternal citizenship. We have a king. This brings us back constantly to the question, am I going to do this my way, or am I going to do this his way? So the man's name was Elimelech. Some of you, if you do a little research, uh, uh, the quick research will tell you that Elimelech, because it starts with the letters E-L, L means, has, well, obviously that means L means God, so God is king. But the early rabbis, even who predate Christianity, thought this was a problem. The, the, the emphasis on his name makes it clear that a point is being made here. And the idea that Elimelech's name is God is king, and then he goes and makes these decisions as though God wasn't his king, seems problematic. And here's what's interesting. If you divide the word Elimelech in a different place, if you divide it after the E-L-I rather than just the E-L, you end up with Eli-Melech, which means I am due to be king. Kingship is due me. And the rabbis have pretty much, it seems like they've pretty much agreed early on that this is what Elimelech's name means. Maybe it's even a play on words to say, God is king. No, no. I should be king. And that's how Elimelech, he does it his way rather than God's way. Kingship is due to me. By the way, names matter. Naomi means pleasant. By the end of today, you're going to hear that she's given herself a new name. She's changed her name by the end of of chapter one. Now, either... The, the names of, of Elimelech and Naomi's sons was lost to history and new names were given to them to fit within the narrative. This happens in Jewish literature. Or, their names were changed after the, after the narrative happened, after the account of this happened, their names were changed to fit within the narrative. Or, Naomi has an odd sense of naming her children because Melon and Kilion means sick and dying. So probably, it's one of the other answers is in there. One of the other options is there. That sick, because what sick and dying are going to do in the narrative of Ruth is they're going to get sick and they're going to die. And that's their entire role. Orpah, one of their wives' name means gazelle or neck. Probably this is a reference to beauty. She was apparently very beautiful. It's hard to know for sure. Ruth's name means something along the lines of Friend. Um, Which, again, seems to fit pretty well with how that's lived out. If you study Hebrew names, you will see there will be a strong correlation between what role they play in the overall narrative and their names. Um, Again, like many cultures, um, like, I don't know, Pine Cove, they rename people, right, under the right situations. And so it may be that these are names given them as like nicknames. A lot of the names that you have for people in the Bible are actually nicknames. The way you know them is actually their nickname. Um, that's true of, of a number of the people who we study periodically. We, I'll usually reference that. So in 1-6, so her sons are dead, her husband is dead. In 1-6, she arose and her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard, the fields of Mo- heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Oops. So she had left, and now you find her, by the way, it references in the fields of Moab, meaning that Naomi who owned property back in Bethlehem with her husband, was actually working other people's fields in Moab. So she had had a significant demotion. She heard that things were better there, and like the prodigal son, she realizes it's time to go home. Unlike the prodigal son, she actually doesn't really have a place to go. She has no one to go back to, but it's time for her to leave. She really is going back to Bethlehem, honestly, ladies and gentlemen, probably to die. Um, she knows that she really has no hope back in Bethlehem. Even if she did have hope in Bethlehem under the law, this is the time of the judges, and people aren't following the law. God's law actually is pretty seriously protective, especially for its era, is very protective of the rights of women. Um, it, is, it is leaps and bounds ahead of anything else during that time period. That being said, it was being ignored by the people of Israel during this time. So they have this sweet parting Um, this is a, this is a tough, a tough conversation that she has. She tells them to leave and go back to their families, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah and Ruth both resist this. So she delivers a little lecture that ends, wraps up in verse 13. Will you therefore wait until they are grown? Talking about if she had new sons. She already has said she's too old to have sons, but if she did, if she had a husband and had sons this day, would you therefore refrain from marrying until them? No, my daughter's. For it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Our first usage of bitter, it's going to come back. Orpah leaves, even though she doesn't want to. I think it's unfair the way Orpah gets painted as kind of a bad guy in this story. Um, I think Orpah, the fact that Orpah did not run um, and, and just betray Naomi instantly when her husband had died, shows actually probably a lot of character. Under normal circumstances, we probably wouldn't have such a hard attitude about Orpah if it wasn't for Ruth. Ruth so outshines even Orpah's attitude that it it just, it kind of, Orpah gets lost in the light of Ruth. Ruth's response is, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and your home will be my home, your people will be my people, and your God my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me and you. How many of you thought that that was written by some priest for a wedding? Where we get the inspiration for maybe the greatest pledge of devotion anywhere in any literature is from a pagan widow following her mother-in-law. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationships are not known for being good ones. And here's something about the woman Naomi has so inspired this young Moabite woman that she can't stand to leave her. What was it about Naomi? I wish we had tons more because dear, for almost the entire story, while we know, know Naomi, she's not pleasant. But she was apparently so pleasant, so charming, such a wonderful person before, that this Moabite woman is drawn away from her gods, is drawn away from her family to such a degree that when they're going to go back, probably, and Ruth would have known this, to go back to Bethlehem and die, which may be why uh, Ruth references it right here, that I'm going to go back and die with you, if that's what it means. She says, that's what I choose to do. Now, part of it, I think, is Naomi. Naomi's hospitality, her love, just the type of woman that she was. Also... Potentially the fact that the people of Moab worshiped Chemosh. So Chemosh is one of the many evil, awful pagan gods. Usually portrayed, this is one of the few actual, there's not a lot known about Chemosh um, because the Moabite culture is pretty much wiped out. Chemosh is almost always portrayed as an old man with clawed type feet. Um, the, reason, the reason that the hands are probably not there because like with often in that part of the world that, that the God's hands are held out like this and they were made out of clay or bronze so that they could be superheated so that you could lay a child in those hands to sacrifice that child by cooking it alive to Chemosh. Um, that's how they worship, Big one of the main ways they worship. Later, Solomon, you can put the other picture up. Um, it's even a little odder. Um, so the, the way Chemosh, as so, later Solomon is going to set up a temple to Chemosh right across the valley of Kidron from um, from Jerusalem, and the Bible's going to call this an abomination. Usually when you hear those terminology put together, it does mean child sacrifice. And so this is who Ruth was raised probably to worship, was the god Chemosh. So it could just be that Naomi had introduced her to a god who actually cared, who actually loved her and her yet unborn children. Maybe it was as simple as I can worship a God who wants to devour my children or I could worship a God who just wants me to consecrate my children so that they can live a full life. Maybe as a mom, as a future mother, this would not be that hard a decision to follow that God instead. I will tell you in my conversation so often with people raised in church um, and no matter what their beliefs are later in life and it's a fun conversation to sit down with them and say, tell me what you were raised with God. Tell me about the God you were raised with. And when they're done talking to get to say, just so you'll know, we're on the same page. I don't believe in that God either. I disbelieve in the God who you were raised with just as much as you disbelieve in any God. So let's agree to be atheists about that God. And instead, let me, let me introduce you to the God who actually is found in Scripture, who's not who you were introduced to. Maybe it's that simple. So anyway, a loving God who actually did not demand the, the, the slaughter of her child may have been part of this as well. But Naomi had so exemplified this God through whatever it was. So the small town of Bethlehem it tells us in Ruth 1:19 through 21, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them and the women said, "Is this Naomi?" Apparently something had changed about Naomi in these 10 years. And she said to them, "Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty." Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? Naomi left Bethlehem pleasant. And she returns bitter. She left full. Now this is a little revisionist history. She's learned a lesson. Why did she leave Bethlehem? Because there was no food. So you would assume she left empty. Without food in her stomach. But now looking back, she realizes she left full. Again, doing even a little more research and uncovering that for a Jewish woman in particular, empty and full is less about food and more about pregnancy. When a Hebrew woman is full, it means she's pregnant. So she left full, her family full, her husband who loved her and her sons who she loved. And she left with all of them as she came back all alone. Again, someone mentioned that must have been really hard on Ruth to be standing right there next to her and have her say, yeah, I'm I'm now, I have nothing. I came back with nothing. But honestly, Ruth probably thought of herself pretty much as nothing. Um, She probably didn't have much. She certainly couldn't rescue them. Neither one of them had the power to do that. She went away full She has land that Elimelech owned, but really even after death, the way the law worked was Elimelech still owned it. She could kind of sell it and get some resources from it, but she couldn't really work it. And even selling it, we don't know what that would have meant and how that would have played out. There's a lot of complications there, but she had no immediate family and no hope. A woman in this era without the protection of family or men is pretty much just a target. As you know, this is the time of the judges, and there's nothing there to protect her. No one is following God's law. Her, their best bet is to beg. Their next best, probably, in their future, the problem is they're going to glean, which means pick up leftover food, but that's only going to take them so far. They will not. The gleaning is meant to postpone starvation. That's all it does. It, their, their, their final situation will be to beg, maybe, somewhere by the tem- by, by, uh, in the city of Bethlehem. The temple's not there yet, but the city of Bethlehem, or perhaps prostitution. Maybe if they're really lucky, they could be somebody's concubine. But that's probably, that's probably a dream. And this condition mirrors very much so Israel in the first century. Enslaved, without hope, without help. In fact, as they dig up bone boxes from the first century, you may know this just from reading the New Testament, by far the most common name in the first century Israel. For women was? Oh, come on. You've read the passages where they go to the tomb. Who goes to the tomb? Mary and then Mary and the other Mary and Mary Magdalene. I honestly can't keep track of all the Marys in the New Testament. I, I'm not kidding. I have a friend who I send texts and emails to going, I can't figure out which Mary is here. Which of the Marys are here? There's, all, there's three or four. Some people say there's even more than those in Jesus' life. There's four or five Marys. It seems like everywhere they go, there's another person named Mary. You can remember Martha because she's not married. That's the way you keep hold of her name. Like, oh, thank goodness there's one named Martha. So they're all named Mary. Mary means bitter. The people of Israel were naming their daughters bitter because their life was bitter, just like Naomi. The the name they embraced among their women was bitterness. Even the non-Marys or the Miriams, bitter, same thing. That is the, and, and by the way, the boys' names Yeshua, Joshua, where we get Jesus, and John, which essentially mean God rescue and God save. So this, is, this is where the people were. were. We're bitter and we need help. We desperately need a Savior. Please, God save us. We have no hope. When we end chapter one of, of the book of Ruth, it is just all bad news. I'm sorry, I told you we would be past that by now, one more week. It is all bad. It still feels like you're in the book of Judges. There's no hope for these two women. They have nothing. And at the end of chapter 1, Lois Lane is still hanging by her fingertips off the edge of the building. It's not until chapter 2, verse 1, that Superman is going to appear. That the Savior is going to show up. But, but we've already talked about this. So we have a hope so when we do the, um, the Advent candles, the first one that we light, that we're lighting this year is hope. <laughs> one year, I think I lit the hope candle like three weeks in a row. Just, <laughs> sorry, no one, no one else knew but John. Like, no, not, never mind. Um, we have a hope, we have a different kind of hope, though. We have a forever type of hope. They call adopted children joining forever families. I guess in a sense they are, but in one sense, death still parts us as families, but not in the adopted family with God. We have a hope that is beyond that. We have been purchased and sealed. We have been um, gifted and chosen. We have been adopted. That's the idea. So we, we have a different hope. We have a hope that is a forever type of hope. We have a Savior. We talked about Him and we sang about Him. We actually already know who this is going to be. But at the beginning of the Advent story, the best you can get is hope because nothing's good yet. Everything is still bad. The people are under the rule of the Romans, a pagan group of warlords who, who dominate them and execute them at will and mistreat them and abuse them and all the different things that we face, that, that we hear about and read and that sometimes we face. Things were bad and there was no hope, but we do get to have one. Second Corinthians 4 16 through 18 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. They're forever. There's a hope that we have that is beyond us. God is going to send a Savior to Ruth and Naomi, but He's just a Savior. Who God sends... To Mary and Joseph and the Jews and the shepherds and all of mankind is not just a Savior. He is the Savior. Definitely Boaz is a pre-Savior example. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. So no matter what you bring to the table, no matter what sins you bring to the table, no matter what it is that haunts you, and no matter what it is you're ashamed of and embarrassed of, no matter what those things are, the failures and frailties that you have, you don't get to compete with the Apostle Paul, who says he is the foremost, and yet Christ also came to save him. And he came to save you. So as we study something that happened to 1,000 years before Jesus Christ came to earth. And here we are 2,000 years later. This message of God sending the Savior is still very real. So pray with me. God, we are so grateful for the truth of your tendency to send saviors. God, I thank you that there's never anything so dark that the light does not overpower it. The light is always your light is always more powerful. Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace the truth that when your son came and he was the light of the world, then he is the light of the world. And now we get to be lights because of what he did. I thank you that as we study someone like Ruth and we study someone like Boaz, they're not so out of reach. We can manage modeling after them the type of relationship that they have with you and the type of relationship that ends up meaning they have with each other and and um, Father, I pray that, that we will be set free of all the, all the different things that we're trying to hang our hat on. We're trying to give purpose or value or whatever to our lives. And instead, stop trying to do it our way. And insist to ourselves to come back to your way. There are, in, in a group this big, there are people who are involved in stuff, whether it looks good or bad on the outside, who they know is just them trying to meet their own needs or their own desires, their own whatever, their own way. And I pray, Lord, that you would instead set them free to do things your way. I pray you would set all of us, I pray you would set me free to do things your way and to live that kind of abundant life. Um, Lord, I thank you for the example of Ruth and Boaz. And as we dive into their story over the next few weeks um, and see how important it is um, that you sent a Savior and that we get to be the beneficiaries of that wonderful news that there is good news. We thank you for that hope in your son's name. Amen.